welcome to the final episode of the first season of Victorian Samplings. I'm Vanessa Warren. In the 10 episodes we've shared this season, we've turned to experts to learn about 19th century things, from books to carpets, from wallpapers to hats. In this, our 11th episode, we welcome four guests who share their knowledge of the material history of pregnancy and parenthood. I talk with Mary Elizabeth Layton and Lisa Surridge about layette pincushions made by or gifted to pregnant women. Anne Hung shares a segment featuring Vicki Mills and her insights on mother's petitions, applications that women made to the Foundling Hospital in London to secure admission for their children. And Jesse Cron speaks with Karen Bourier about a hidden mother portrait and what it reveals about author Dinah Craig's relationship to her daughter Dorothy and also to her profession. Please stay with us. Hello, Lisa, and hello, Mary Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Vanessa. It's really lovely to be here, Vanessa. In this episode, we're exploring the material history of pregnancy and of parenting, and we've come to you to learn about layette pincushions. Can I turn to you, Mary Elizabeth, for a definition or an introduction? A layette pincushion was a pincushion that was part of a child's layette. That is the complete outfit of clothing, of toilet accessories, of bedding for a newborn. And so a layette pincushion, therefore, was a pincushion that would have been made by or for an expectant mother. It would have been made of often quite lovely material. These were small items made of satin or silk, and they often included decorative embroidery, perhaps lace around the edges, but they also notably included a message pricked out in pins, hence the pincushion part of the layup pincushion. We have been fascinated by the different kinds of messages that people pricked out in pins on layette pincushions from welcome little stranger, a quite Victorian way of talking about a future imagined newborn to suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me or some such biblical verse. And so it may well be the case that people have layup in cushions and don't know that they have them. One of our friends and collaborators here in Victoria told us uh, that she was not aware that her pincushion was in fact a layup pincushion. She always imagined that the message was uh, printed on the pin on the pin cushion with decorative beading or something in that vein. Um, and so these were pins, in fact, that spelled out messages that made decorations. And the pins, of course, would have been intended for use in babies' diapers. So this was at a moment before the invention of the safety pin when in fact long straight pins would have been used in baby's diapers. 
And so the pincushion had at once a quite sentimental function, but also a practical one being geared towards use, hopefully, um, after the birth of a newborn. They're very beautiful objects, and we'll put some links to some images on our episode page. I'm wondering about what these kinds of objects can tell us about pregnancy or perhaps about infant care in the Victorian period. So first of all, uh, maybe a little bit about infant care. I, I think it's surprising to us to imagine that infants' clothes were held together with straight pins. And that in fact, before the safety pin became popular in the 1870s, that was what your uh, child's clothing was held together with, both the diaper and the back of the garment. And there are some quite um, sort of caustic articles in the periodical press about the, you know, the child coming into the world and then being immediately stuck with a pin, you know, from this, um, from these straight pins. So that's, you know, one thing that it tells us. But I think what we found really poignant about these pincushions is the idea that they are, as it were, sort of messages to the imagined and as yet unborn child. And that those messages um, would really differ in how you read them after the birth if the child were perhaps stillborn. And when I say perhaps, that was a common outcome of birth in the period. So 149 children would be stillborn per thousand live births, which is very considerable. So one of the things that we have realized is that a message like God bless thee, my baby, would become very poignant, very moving in the wake of a stillbirth. And that we have no way of knowing in many cases how these um, these texts, these kind of messages to, to future children might have read because we don't know the history of the families in which these pincushions were passed down. So, you know, we've been thinking about this pincushion that our friend and collaborator had suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, which is a quotation from the book of Matthew. And, you know, if this were uh, a, a layup pincushion for a surviving child, then it's surrounded by this lovely image of the child coming to be blessed by Jesus. But of course, if the child died, it becomes a different message, right? It becomes uh, a message where the child has gone to heaven, presumably. And so the, the meaning of these messages changes enormously according to the outcome of what was a, a fairly perilous passage for both mother and child in the period, although more perilous for the child. I noticed in some that I viewed online, the message, welcome little stranger, seemed to be circulated a lot. Did you want to comment on that phrase, little stranger? I found it very surprising and also evocative. When we came to this project on Victorian pregnancy in fiction and culture more generally, we decided that we needed to know more about the vocabulary that Victorians used to talk about pregnancy. And so we turned to Victorian newspapers and magazines to do some research on how historical Victorians talked about pregnancy. And one phrase that kept cropping up in the press was, welcome little stranger. And so I think we actually came to the layout pincushions through that research on the vocabulary of pregnancy 
in the newspaper and magazine press because we started cranking terms that we were finding into Google and into, you know, Victorian dictionaries to tr when we weren't familiar with the terms. And of course, as soon as you punch welcome little stranger into your Google search, you wind up at the Victorian Albert Museum with their astonishing collection of layout pincushions, and you arrive at a whole bevy of layout pincushions. And so we were fascinated with this material culture of the layout pincushion as an expression of this terminology we were finding in the periodical press. And so that idea of welcoming the little stranger, as Lisa was saying, um, really imagines some future moment in which both the child and the mother would have survived delivery. But it certainly takes on a different poignant resonance to contemplate other possibilities. I'm really excited about your Great Expectations project, and I'm wondering about other aspects of the material culture of pregnancy that you're exploring with the project. So I would say that we've become fascinated by Victorian maternity wear, and that that in itself is almost a misnomer, Vanessa. So when we started this project, we started thinking about, you know, we'd like to look at Victorian maternity dresses. And we emailed um, museum curators to ask if we could see their collections. And they very gently and kindly said to us, uh, there's really no such thing. There's adjustable clothing. And so that has become fascinating to us to actually look in the seams of Victorian garments and to see the evidence of pregnancy, of lived pregnancy, where a dart would be let out, a seam would be let out, um, a dress might be adjustable with um, some kind of drawstring around the waist to allow the body to expand and then presumably again to contract. And then maybe with the nature of pregnancy in many fertile women's lives, to expand again, right? So it, it is obvious to us now that our idea um, that you would simply divide off a separate wardrobe that would be for a very limited time in your life is an idea that comes from the availability of very reliable birth control. And that we um, sort of imported that assumption backwards into the 19th century but that what dress tells us is that for many women um, in their fertile years, pregnancy was um, was very frequent. Um, also, uh, pregnancy loss might be very frequent as well, so that you could have a series of pregnancies for many years in your adult life and that your clothing would reflect that. I love the idea of reading the interior of the garments for evidence of these adjustments or changes that are made over the course of a, of a woman's use of that garment. Can I take you back to the layette pincushions and ask, do you see similar traces of their use? I think we've come to suspect, Vanessa, that there may have been both a practical and a decorative function to these pincushions. 
we recently plucked a pin out of a pin cushion that we had purchased on eBay with some trepidation as well as great excitement. And it was fascinating to discover that those pins were quite short, in fact. Uh, The pin cushion itself is about five inches wide and three inches deep and about two and a half inches thick, which is quite large for a pin cushion. If you compare it, say, to those ubiquitous tomato pin cushions that, that you can find in contemporary sewing stores, we were quite astonished at how big the pin cushion was when it arrived in the mail. Um, and it was interesting to pull out the pin, which itself is only about a centimeter and a half long. That quite short length has led us to think perhaps that our pincushion is maybe more for decorative use than for functional use. Because of course, long straight pins that were used in diapers before the advent of the safety pin, as Lisa was saying, would have, uh, they would have been longer. And I'm not sure how much would have been able to have been held together with those shorter pins. So so just the the sort of material fact of our own recently acquired pin cushion makes us think that there may have been a trend toward decorative pin cushions, even as there was this longer history of the the much more practical functional pincushion. So you're coming to this work as scholars of literature and I'm wondering about how your study of literature has been transformed or just informed by your study of these material objects. Well, you know, Vanessa, first of all, we discovered that there's a whole vast literature about the pincushion and that there are um, pincushion narratives written in the first person. Uh, There are stories about the adventures of pincushions. There are fascinating pincushion narratives that narrate the lives of women from the intimate position that they would have held on their boudoir table. And those pincushions are imagined as the witnesses of very um, intimate and private moments in women's lives, very moving moments, actually, of, of marriage, of childbirth. So that was our first discovery as of a quite unknown genre of the pincushion or the pin as narrator. The other almost rediscovery for us was to realize that there were passages in some of our favorite novels that we had passed over or not understood. And one of those is in Dickens's David Copperfield. So I just want to read the beginning of David Copperfield to you, and I want you to listen for some of the phrases that we've just talked about. My mother was sitting by the fire, but poorly in health and very low in spirits, looking at it through her tears and desponding heavily about herself and the fatherless little stranger who was already welcomed by some grosses of prophetic pins in a drawer upstairs to a world not at all excited on the subject of his arrival. My mother, I say, was sitting by the fire that bright, windy March afternoon, very timid and sad and very doubtful of ever coming alive out of the trial that was before her. So I have read that many times and so has Mary Elizabeth, but neither of us understood the reference to the grosses of prophetic pins that were in a drawer upstairs and the reference to the fatherless little stranger. And it's clear to us now that um, that the widowed Mrs. Copperfield 
has a pincushion that that says welcome little stranger and that David is that little stranger. It's also clear to us that the reference to some grosses of prophetic pins is realistic. It's not hyperbolic. I think when we first read it, we thought, how many grosses of pins could you use? Because there are 12 dozen pins in a gross. So we were thinking, how many pins could you possibly use in a pincushion? So we counted the ones on ours and we came up to close to 500 at our best count. So this is actually realistic. It gives us an idea of the amount of time that Mrs. Copperfield has spent contemplating her delivery and the birth of this little stranger who is the child of her now dead husband. I think though we also read this now in a way that is moving because this is prophetic of Mrs. Copperfield's birth, not in labor, but in David's childhood when he does become a little stranger. He becomes a stranger to his family, to his past life, sort of to himself. And so that that whole novel, in a way, I think, becomes a play on the idea of welcome little stranger. And David becomes the stranger that is initially loved and welcomed by this mother then afterwards, very unwelcomed in the world, very much a stranger, and then finally welcomed again by his Aunt Betsy, who, of course, was present at the birth. So it's it's really fascinating to us to realize that this contemporary um, cultural reference to the Layette pincushion had completely passed us by and that much of what is moving about that initial scene of the expectant mother sitting heavily by the fire, you know, she is heavy with child at this point, was was simply lost to us. What a compelling example of the value of studying these objects. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to have had this chance to speak with you both. Thank you so much, Vanessa. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Mary Elizabeth Layton and Lisa Surridge. Mary Elizabeth and Lisa are professors in the Department of English at the University of Victoria. They are the co-authors of The Plot Thickens, illustrated Victorian serial fiction from Dickens to Du Maurier, published by Ohio UP. You can learn more about their Great Expectations project by following them on Twitter at C19 underscore pregnancy. Before we share the next segment of this episode, we note that it engages lived experiences of sexual violence and family separation. Hello, I'm Anne Hung, and it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Vicki Mills, a lecturer in Victorian literature and culture at Birkbeck University of London, and the exhibition researcher for an exhibition on the fallen woman at the Foundling Museum in 2015, curated by Professor Linda Need. Listen along as she explores the rich history of the Foundling Hospital and the petitions used in the application process, as well as the mediation of mother's experiences and the ethics of the archive. Thanks very much for inviting me to be part of this podcast. So the Foundling Hospital was established in 1739 to help unmarried mothers who were unable to care for their babies. 
the stigma of illegitimacy was very real at this time and this combined with the relative poverty of most of the mothers made it impossible for them to keep their babies and to support themselves. Uh, It's actually estimated that in the early 18th century, up to a thousand babies a year were abandoned on the streets of London by mothers who found themselves in this position. The hospital was founded by the philanthropist Thomas Coram, who was helped by some very prominent people, including the composer George Friedrich Handel and the painter William Hogarth. Babies started to be admitted to the hospital in 1741, and it finally closed its doors in the 1950s. So the institution has a a very long and fascinating history. The founding museum that you mentioned is in Bloomsbury, central London, and it sits on the site of the 18th century Foundling Hospital. Now, the Foundling Hospital records are housed in the London Metropolitan Archives, and this is an amazing collection. From its beginnings in the 18th century, the hospital kept meticulous records of all kinds. The mother's petitions, they're housed there, but also committee notes, medical records, gatekeepers' records, notes on staff employed by the hospital, accounts, baptism records. In total, in fact, the records take up over a massive 800 feet of shelving in the archives. So these petitions formed a very important part of the application process that women had to undertake in order to stand a chance of having their babies accepted by the hospital. One important context for understanding the experience of mid-19th century women who applied to have their babies accepted is that of fallenness. So for a woman to fall, to become a, a fallen woman implies that she had once been respectable but had dropped out of respectable society. And this is very important in the context of the history of the Foundling Hospital, as it was only women whose characters were deemed respectable who stood a chance of having their babies accepted by the institution. So if you had a long history of prostitution, for example, you would not have been considered suitable for help by the hospital. A sex life for women was only deemed appropriate within marriage. Proof of sexual misconduct, sexual transgression in the form of pregnancy seriously compromised a woman's future, her future acceptance by society, her employability and so on. And so for these women, the founding hospital offered a way forward because to have your child accepted meant the possibility of returning to a respectable working life and the promise of a decent future for your child. And the figure of the fallen woman provided inspiration for a wide range of artists and writers, including Charles Dickens, who wrote an article about the Foundling Hospital in the journal he edited called Household Words in the 1850s, also for Elizabeth Gaskell and George Eliot, and for artists George Frederick Watts, Richard Redgrave and Augustus Egg. So it was a a topic that very much captured the popular imagination. Now, when you order the petitions up in the London Metropolitan Archives, they come in date-organised folded bundles, each tied with a piece of ribbon. And folded within each petition, you often find letters and other documents relating to the application process. So, for example, letters of reference from a former employer, And you also sometimes find medical records, so things like records from lying in hospitals. 
So the petition that you can see on the Crafting Communities website was completed by a woman called Anne Gidding in 1831. And the petition form had a space for for all mothers to give information about their age, marital status, date of delivery, sex of the child, name, occupation and whereabouts of the father, if known, as well as the last date of contact with him. Now, the process of admission to the hospital was was very long, demanding and emotional for mothers. So firstly, a woman wishing her child to be considered had to go and actually collect the petition from the hospital's porter at the lodge. And this hospital porter would make his notes on callers in a logbook in which he noted down the appearance of the petitioners, observing their dress and judging whether they appeared respectable. Following this, a woman applicant had to fill in the form and bring it to the hospital at 10am sharp on the following Saturday. There are a number of conditions for acceptance noted on the petition forms and each case was judged against this set of criteria which included the stipulation that there must be no deception involved, no lies told during the application process, no bribery attempted. The mother must not be in contact with the father because the whole idea was that the father was out of the picture and not able to support the mother. The woman applicant must have a good character and thus be likely to be able to find honest work after leaving her baby with the hospital. Once the petition was complete, mothers were required to attend an interview during which they answered questions put to them by the hospital committee. And these questions were very probing ones about the intimate details of their personal lives. They would be standing alone in front of an all-male committee compelled to recount what had often been a traumatic occurrence because a lot of these women were in fact the victims of sexual violence. Women were asked detailed questions about the nature of their relationship with the father of their child, questions such as where did you reside when you were seduced and what led to your seduction? Was the criminal intercourse repeated? When did you first find yourself pregnant? And so we can note here also the language of seduction used in lieu of a language more suggestive of forms of criminal violence. So this idea of seduction was used to describe both uh, consenting and non-consenting forms of sexual intercourse. Now, the petitioner's oral testimony transcribed by a secretary was written on the back of the petition or on separate sheets folded within an individual petition form. And there is evidence that many of the petitioners understood the criteria for acceptance and were able to craft their testimony accordingly. So, for example, a woman named Harriet Hooper, a flower maker, states on her petition that if relieved of the child, I purpose going on with my work. And you can see on Anne Giddings' petition that I mentioned earlier that she writes plaintively, and I'm quoting her now, that I am wholly unable to support myself and my child and hope that you will take this to your feeling consideration. Following the petitioner's oral testimony, a hospital inquirer would conduct further research into the background and character of the mother to build up a picture about the applicant. And this would often mean requesting letters or other written documentation. And these letters that you find folded within the petitions are fascinating because many of them came edged in black and sealed with a black seal. So in effect, they were 
written on morning paper that's the kind of thing that you would do if you were writing a, a letter of condolence to someone and the reason that the letters were presented in this way is that the situation of these unmarried women their fallen state was considered to be a kind of death so this is a sort of mourning for their character for the loss of the character of these women so to complete this narrative about the process of application Successful applicants were asked to deliver their children to the hospital on a set date and would be given a note of receipt which had to be produced if they wished to inquire after or indeed later claim their child. We should note though that Anne Gidding, the female applicant that I've been talking about, had her application rejected as a bribe had been offered as part of the application process. So it's important to note that the only part of the petition form physically completed by the women themselves was the questionnaire on the front of it. Even then, some women who couldn't read or write had to ask friends or family to help them to complete the form. They then would provide their mark in the form of a cross instead of a, a signature on the form. So the written testimony of mothers that I've been talking about is largely transcribed by the hospital secretary. So while it feels very immediate, there is an element of mediation, especially in the choice of language. I've already talked about the language of seduction. Another term that is often used is criminal conversation, which is a legal term referring to an adulterous relationship between a man and a woman in which one or both were married. In many of the cases detailed in the petitions, neither party was married and the term simply refers to sexual intercourse outside of marriage. But one of the things that interests me about the materiality of these objects is the way in which storage mediates or transforms them in some way. So as I mentioned at the start, the petitions are folded and it's interesting to think about different practices of folding and what they might suggest. So we have this idea of the folding of the petitions as part of the hospital's bureaucratic apparatus for neatness and economies of storage, but also the idea of enfolding, which acts as a form of protective embrace for these women and their stories. And finally, the act of unfolding undertaken by the researcher, a practice involving forms of tactile intimacy with paper that is itself revelatory of intimacy, is it even a f another form of a violation, violation of a paper object that acts as a material surrogate of a woman's body? We unfold, we touch the paper, we read intimate accounts of sexual encounters, often violent. And this, this whole process raises questions about the relationship between our engagements with these paper objects. The petitions and their paratextual elements contain so much private and personal information about the women. But the problem here is we can't ask the dead for consent. Would these women have been happy with the idea of their stories being told? Does the fact that these women's stories are 100 to 150 years old, indeed older, make the idea of consent less of a problem? Of course, legally, there is no issue. But what are our ethical obligations to these women and their stories? What kind of care should we show towards them? There is, I think, a tension between the desire to recuperate the experience of these women and a feeling that this is very private business. If successful with their applications to the hospital, 
These women were able to leave their past lives behind and find work without fear of rejection through the taint of fallenness. So does recuperative archival work of this nature compromise this in some way? Do we owe these women a form of reputational protection? What's more, to select one petition from the hundreds of bundles is to confront a further problem. This process of selection uncomfortably mirrors and replicates the original selection process faced by mothers applying to the hospital. So on the other hand, by revealing these stories, we can draw attention to an important area of female experience, an important part of women's history, in ways that resonate with contemporary concerns over social welfare. For example, how we make judgments about who we help or don't help. We can use this material to reflect on contemporary issues around sexual violence. And indeed, this archive provides an important context for the work of the Quorum charity, which continues today to provide help for vulnerable and struggling parents. You have been listening to Dr. Vicki Mills on Mother's Petitions and the Foundling Hospital. For a closer look at Anne Giddings' petition mentioned in this segment, visit the Victorian Things exhibit on the Crafting Communities website. Hi, I'm Karen Borier at the University of Calgary. I teach English specializing in Victorian literature and culture and the digital humanities. And I'm Jessie Cron. The subjects of the photo that we're talking about today are posed unconventionally. Karen, could you tell us about this photograph, its subjects, and why they're positioned in the way that they are? Uh, so this photograph is part of a genre that an artist called Linda Fregney Negler kind of created on eBay way later than uh, it was it was taking place. So in the Victorian era, due to long exposure times, if you wanted a picture of your child, you needed to find a way to keep them calm for the exposure time. Uh, and this gave rise to what Nagler has called hidden mother portraits, um, where there's a mother or sometimes it's a father who can be covered in upholstery or in the case of this particular portrait, which is of the author Dinah Craig and her daughter Dorothy. Dinah is just hiding kind of has her head tucked very sweetly behind her one-year-old and her arm around her one-year-old. And the idea was that she wanted a picture of the one-year-old who might be super squirmy and that having a parent or a caregiver there would calm the child enough to get that portrait. There has been very little written about hidden mother portraits, um, but it's really easy to see them or read them as the typical kind of like Victorian self-sacrificing mother self-effacing herself, right? Because Craig's face is not visible in this portrait um, and nor are any, they're called hidden mother portraits because the mothers, although they were sometimes fathers, are always hidden. Um, I, I have a little bit of a different reading of this particular portrait, which is that I, I think that Craig uses it alongside um, with like different prefaces for her children's writing. So she wrote a great kind of holiday narrative called Little Sunshine's Holiday about her daughter's first train journey to Scotland. And along with other kind of paratextual materials, there's an etching of her daughter in one of them to kind of show that uh, she's a mother and has this claim 
to authority in her children's writing through motherhood, if that makes sense. So, so she's front and centering her daughter and she seems to be kind of putting herself, well, she is literally putting herself in the background, but I think there can be a professional purpose to that, right? We don't need to read it as this moment uh, where she's a mother and not an author, the two can be working in conjunction with each other. Uh, and I think this particular portrait was given to her friend uh, Guizot, uh, Francois Guizot, the former prime minister, whose daughter Henriette Dewitt was also a children's author whom Craig translated. And then they had kind of this trans-channel relationship going on where uh, Dewitt translated Craig as well. And if you see them as kind of two children's authors bonding over motherhood, uh, there can be this professional dimension to the relationship that they're getting as well that bolsters their authority to speak to children and about children rather than undermining it. So, you know, I don't think that we need to see um, foregrounding the children as unprofessional, basically. You mentioned that her paratexts or her prefatory material in her writing are doing a lot to ground her writing in a wider discourse. Could you explain what paratexts are and how they help us understand this photo? Yeah, so the paratext um, is a term coined by Jeanette. Uh, and you can, I have a colleague who explains it by thinking of the, it's, it's anything that is not the book itself, uh, so, or the literary text itself. So if you imagine like just a word document with the words in the book there, then anything else that's added to that is kind of the paratext, right? So like the decision that you make about the cover that authors and editors make about covers, um, running heads that you might have on the top, the pagination of the book, uh, the blurbs on the back of the book. Uh, and it can even extend, uh, Jeanette suggests, to uh, different materials around the author's life or interviews or things that help us kind of interpret the text in that way. So I would argue that, you know, this picture of a child, this was meant for private circulation, um, but it can be read as part of the paratextual materials that Craig had around how she situated herself as a mother um, with that experience uh, writing for children and situated herself as an authority, right? So she might write in her preface uh, that this was a holiday I took with my two-year-old daughter and uh, have these claims to authority about, you know, it was written from real life and claim authority that way. And then she might also have an etching of her daughter accompanying that uh, or these private, more private materials circulating. To the 21st century viewer, this photo might seem uncanny or unsettling, in the same way that a lot of Victoriana has become. Would these photos have had the same atmosphere in their original context? Yeah, I think it is true that for modern viewers, uh, the hidden mother portraits as well as the posthumous portraits, especially the posthumous portraits of dead children, like they've kind of taken off on the internet on Flickr uh, and been covered on various social media sites, like you can find whole Pinterest boards devoted to pictures of hidden mothers or posthumous children that, and people, it's like the creepy factor <laughs> around it or the uncanny factor. So like these will crop up around Halloween uh, and people are like, oh, those strange Victorians, what, you know, what are they doing next? Uh, for me, the hidden mother portraits uh, in particular, this one um, are not as uncanny and would not have been uncanny uh, to the Victorians. So. Uh, you know, it was, it was a commonplace kind of genre. So like we might personally get that like, ooh, feeling if we're seeing, especially one of the upholstered hidden mother portraits um, where you like, they look like a ghost or something behind all of the upholstery. Uh, this one I think reads a little more sentimentally because it's, you can clearly see it's a person behind there and it's her mother behind her embracing her with just her face obscured. 
uh, behind her daughter. So it's a little more sentimental, a little sweeter. Um, but yeah, I think if we, we put our mind back to those Victorian practices and remember, uh, like, you know, if you've had to deal with a toddler or a baby, like you're not going to get them to sit still for the amount of time that was required to take the exposure, right? Uh, so there was a very practical reason behind it. So the, even though it's a little clickbaity uh, right now for 21st century viewers, uh, it was not the same way for the Victorians, I don't think. Oh, and one interesting thing about this hidden mother portrait is that the genre like of necessity, my colleague Susan Cook pointed out to me is about anonymity. So there aren't many of these portraits where we know who the mother or who the child was because they're just kind of showing up on eBay. You can buy them and it'll be like spooky mother and child uh, kind of thing. So they're, they're completely decontextualized, which might add to the uncanniness of this kind of photo. Uh, and my colleague, Susan Cook, uh, tells me that this is actually the only hidden mother portrait that she's come across where it's of a, a famous mother and child and where we can date it and have all of this contextual information around it, uh, right? Because how do you tell who it is if it's a baby? I mean, we all might like think like, oh, you look exactly like you did when you were a baby, but you're not really <laughs> probably gonna be able to tell from someone's baby photo who it is. And then if the, uh, the grown up is hidden behind, like there's that complete anonymity that maybe adds to the uncanniness of some of these portraits. Um, so this is, a particularly interesting example of the hidden mother portrait since it's we know it's a famous mother and it was kept carefully, uh, not in Craig's own archive, uh, but in the former French Prime Minister's archive. And there's a very romantic story that I'll tell you too if you want to yeah. answer one of your questions. Dinah Craig adopted her daughter and the photo was taken shortly after, um, so about four or five months after, uh, Dorothy Craig was found, it, various accounts have it, like that she was abandoned by a hay bale almost freezing or in a cemetery almost freezing, I'm not sure we know exactly where. Uh, and there was, there were several women in the parish who wanted to adopt this child, um, who was probably uh, the child of a fallen woman. Um, although Craig liked to imagine that she wasn't and that she had noble blood instead, I, I think she might have been deluding herself a little bit there. And it, it became quite a sensation in the parish uh, with, you know, more than one person, childless couple wanting to adopt her and was a sensation among Craig's community as well. She had many publishers congratulating her on the romantic story of her adoption of a child and saying like, what a wonderful Christian thing to do to welcome the little stranger into your home. So it's nice that this portrait uh, taken when Dorothy was around one, like just after Craig had adopted her kind of memorializes that occasion. Thanks so much, Karen, for speaking with me and for all that you've shared. Karen is a professor at the University of Calgary and the author of two books, The Measure of Manliness, Disability and Masculinity in Mid-Victorian Fiction, as well as Victorian bestseller, The Life of Dinah Craig. Before I thank our guests and the student co-creators of this podcast, I'd like to thank you for listening. The Victorian Samplings team is very grateful for your company on this audio adventure. We hope you'll join us again for our second season. We also hope you'll help us grow our audience by sharing Victorian Samplings with friends, students, colleagues, crafters, anyone who might be curious about the material culture of the 19th century. Stay in touch by emailing us at crafting at uvic.ca by following us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian, and by visiting our website, craftingcommunities.net. 
Thank you to guests Lisa Surridge, Mary Elizabeth Layton, Vicki Mills, and Karen Bourier. Thank you to student team members Jesse Cron and Anne Hung for their work creating segments for this episode. And thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription of the episode and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lekwungen and Sanchothan speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Metis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening. <laughs>